Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by, and welcome to Pado's first quarter 2020 financial results conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. I would now like to hand the conference to your speaker today. Darren G, President and Chief Executive Officer. Please go ahead, sir. Okay, well, thanks, Joelle, and uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thanks for tuning in to Pato's first quarter 2020 results conference call. Uh, before we get started today, would like to remind everybody that all statements made by the company during this call are subject to the same forward-looking disclaimer and advisory we set forth in the company's news release yesterday. Uh, in the room with me today and honoring our two-meter spacing rules, uh, we've got the full management team. Uh, we've got J.P. Lachance, our VP of Engineering and Chief Operating Officer. Kathy Turgeon is here with our uh, Chief Operating Officer. Uh, Dave Thomas, our VP of Exploration, is here. Uh, Todd Burdick, our VP of Production. Lee Kern, our VP of Drilling and Completions. Tim Louie, our VP of Land. And we've got Scott Robinson, our VP of Business Development here. So the whole team is here for your questions. Uh, before I get started, though, with my comments today about our results, uh, I would like to recognize the extraordinary efforts and perhaps even the bravery shown by the entire PATO team, uh, including our field personnel over the first quarter. Our team set aside their fears with respect to the pandemic and continued to provide Albertans with the critical energy that's required to keep our households warm and safe and to power our ever-so-important hospitals and critical care facilities during this global pandemic. It was a uh, scary time for everyone, but uh, we were all extremely careful and successfully got the job done. Uh, because we, what we produce at PAYDO obviously is very essential and critical in our society, and we are very much reminded of that fact these days. It's very important that we keep all our employees and key service providers healthy and safe, especially during this time. So uh, congratulations to the whole team and a job well done. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank all of our frontline healthcare workers in the province who are also putting their lives at risk every day to ensure that we have the full capacity of the healthcare system available to all those Albertans that are in need. So uh, on to our first quarter results. Um, obviously the first quarter uh, proved to be a very challenging period for PATO with a very sudden and dramatic drop in uh, oil prices during the quarter. and. We had a pretty consistent erosion even in natural gas prices throughout that quarter. So not only did we have to deal with the pandemic and all of the things that that brought, we had to deal with some rather uh, terrible commodity prices too. Um, this was quite the reversal from the fourth quarter sentiment where we were very optimistic on where gas prices were going and the fact that uh, we expected 2020 to be uh, a bigger and better year than 2019. But I suppose so far that's uh, not been the case. However, our, uh, <clears throat> our team here at PATO uh, remained very nimble and we responded to these new challenges as we always have uh, with a uh, straight head on. As we saw, the winter heating season failed to materialize and the, the gas prices, uh, particularly the NYMEX price in the U.S., which we're now much more exposed to, uh, we saw that NYMEX price uh, basically erode away in the quarter. Uh, we decided we needed to slow down our winter program <clears throat> a little bit and uh, defer some of the capital that we had planned in the earlier part of the year to, to later in the year when we could see prices tighten up a little bit. Uh, we did that, I think, in February by, uh, by dropping some drilling rigs. Um, then in, in March, of course, the oil price crashed on the demand impact due to COVID-19, and we had the price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia, where they were threatening to flood the market with a whole bunch of production. Uh, so a lot of changes. We had to completely reassess our drilling plans uh, for the year in light of the, uh, the impact to our economics that those commodity prices brought. So we quickly shifted our focus away from the more liquids-rich cardium opportunities we've been chasing all of 2019 
to now the more leaner, drier gas Spirit River opportunities that we have within our portfolio. I think, you know, it's a real testament to PEDO and its nimbleness uh, to be able to do that so quickly and, and so efficiently. By the end of the quarter, uh, we'd revised our capital plans for the year. We rebuilt our entire drilling schedule with uh, more of a focus on leaner gas opportunities. Uh, also, by the end of March, we saw a new commodity strip evolving uh, with some real interesting developments on the oil supply side, as uh, now we had potential shut-ins uh, uh, being promoted. Uh, storage was filling rapidly. The OPEC plus plus group was talking about taking a lot of volumes offline as opposed to flooding the market, and uh, there was an interesting sort of follow-on effect uh, with respect to associated gas being shut in and therefore causing gas prices to rise. And that last effect uh, really was the silver lining for us uh, as a gas producer, and we started to focus on that one. However, we had to be a little bit careful because we also produce condensate, and we had to think about what would happen to that condensate as heavy oil in Alberta was shut in. So there were a lot of uh, sort of exterior market considerations to think about in the first quarter that kept us on our toes. Um, those are all the things going on outside of PEDO that we don't really control. Inside of PEDO, though, I think uh, the things that we do control, uh, we're going quite well. We, we drilled some very nice wells in the first quarter, uh, finished up a large 3D seismic program over a big block in the southern area of Greater Sundance. We, we built a large diameter pipeline that opens up a brand new area in South Brazo called Chambers. Uh, we continue to see improvements in our capital costs and uh, Lee is here this morning. Hopefully he can talk a little bit more about how those might continue to evolve this year. Uh, operating, in the costs, uh, operating costs in the quarter were a, li were a little higher than uh, normal, mostly due to our preparations really for COVID-19 supply chain disruptions and a few other things, but uh, we've got some great initiatives for the rest of the year, which you should see those coming down. Todd can talk about the, those a little more. Uh, from a production perspective, things ran pretty smoothly. Um, you know, as uh, both propane and gas prices changing throughout the quarter, uh, we, we were inclined to toggle our deep cut on and off, uh, depending on whether propane prices were too weak and gas prices were strong, or then gas prices weakened and propane prices got stronger. Um, we seem to be getting better and better at this, though, so uh, it's nice that we have that flexibility to target the best price uh, possible and, and put the production in the right form to attract that best price. As I mentioned, uh, we were concerned with how our condensate would be priced and handled. Uh, if a lot of that heavy oil demand disappeared, then so too would the demand for condensate. So uh, we collected uh, all of our tanks, we rented a bunch more tanks, and uh, we built a couple of key tank farms on a couple of plant sites to store about 80,000 barrels of condensate, which is two to three weeks worth of production, uh, just in case there was a major disruption to the condensate markets. Um, this is likely more of an insurance policy than anything, so we don't have to shut in all of our production, gas, condensate, and NGLs, if there's a problem with uh, getting our condensate to market. It's fairly inexpensive to build this uh, capacity and this insurance, so I think it's the right move, and we don't know yet whether we're gonna use the full uh, capacity or not. We're, we're definitely not through the oil storage problem yet. It is still continuing to mount out there, so uh, it's a good uh, bit of insurance to have in our pocket. Uh, financially for the quarter, uh, commodity prices were some of the lowest we've ever seen at Pato, unfortunately, and, and delivered the lowest per unit revenue in our entire 21-year history. So even with our low costs, uh, that translated into the lowest net back in our history as well. Um, these low prices caused the independent reservoir engineering firms to drop their price deck substantially, and that caused a significant impact to the perceived value of our reserve assets. Uh, when we compare that to what we spent on those reserves, we ended up having to t record a small non-cash impairment of around $80 million, uh, and that in turn results in a loss for the quarter. Uh, this is the first impairment we've ever taken as a company, and it's the first quarterly loss we've posted in the last 15 years. It wasn't really a record I wanted to break, uh, unfortunately, but it is a sign of the times. Um, We'd expect that uh, as oil and gas prices rise and the reservoir engineering uh, firms increase their price forecast back up that this impairment will reverse. So unfortunately, the uh, extreme volatility in commodity prices 
translated into fairly extreme volatility in our earnings. Uh, so they, that was, uh, you know, basically it for the quarter. Um, it was a bit of a tough quarter, but we managed to make it through intact, and uh, I think we're looking forward to some uh, improvement for the rest of the year. Uh, Joel, perhaps uh, we could throw the line open and uh, just take some questions from those listening in. Thank you. As a reminder, to ask a question, you'll need to press star 1 on your telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Our first question comes from Faye Lee with Odom Brown. Your line is now open. Hi, uh, Fi here. Um, Darren, I just want to talk a little bit about the impairment test that was performed. And um, does it reflect the, the hedgings, your hedges in place and the um, um, diversification um, arrangements? Yes, it does. Uh, those arrangements were included in the reserve uh, evaluation. Um, so depending on what the commodity prices at those various hubs are that are forecast by their independent reservoir engineers, then that translates into uh, what our realized prices would be. Um, obviously, our reserve report uh, is somewhat uh, tailored a little bit to the commodity prices that we perceive at the time uh, when we did it at the year end. You know, we, we had a lot of cardium drilling at the front end uh, because gas prices were weaker and oil prices were stronger. And so, you know, naturally that's the way that we built a, a, a drilling forecast going out, picking from the uh, inventory that we have. We don't populate the entire reserve report with all the inventory that we have in the future, obviously. Um, we have a couple thousand or more locations, obviously, to choose from, and the independent reservoir engineering firm will pick from those uh, for the next five or so years to populate a forecast of, uh, of development. It only takes a fraction of our of our undeveloped locations then and, and puts it in the reserve report. But we, you know, we try to direct them a little bit as to what's the most profitable looking species that we're drilling from. And so, you know, for the last year or two, it's been the cardium with its high liquid yields. And so we brought those to the forefront and uh, put those first up. Um, I think, you know, realistically though, uh, if we were to rebuild the complete reserve report today, reflective of the change, the dramatic change in the quantity price, um, we would bring a lot more of our drier gas opportunities forward earlier in the forecast for development. So, um, you know, there's there's little sort of changes within the, the way the reserve reports are constructed that don't uh, adapt to such a dramatic change in commodity prices, obviously. But, um, the, yeah, the reserve report is relatively fulsome in that it reflects all the parts of our business. Okay, so that's kind of the, where my follow-up was going to go. It's like it looks like one of the criticisms of the um, reserve um, engineers is that the price assumptions or um, evaluation companies, the, the price assumptions they use have always seemed to be quite aggressive relative to where the forward or strips are, or where current prices are, and it, it, certainly the debt looks. What you've outlined in the MDA looks a lot more realistic. So in terms of Evaluating your book value, which is close to, I guess, $10 per share, is that kind of, you know, it seems like, am I interpreting correctly when it looks like it's more representative of the, the MPV based on this current price deck that's outlined in your MDMA? Is that the way to think about it? Plus, obviously, there's some stuff that you mentioned that are not included in that report. Uh, yeah, although, you know, still, I it's very difficult, obviously, for the independent reservoir engineering firms to come up with a forecast as well right now. You know, there's been so much change going on that you're right. We, we, we criticize them maybe a little bit that their forecasts are optimistic relative to strips sometimes when we look at it. But you have to remember that these are the same guys that do look at everybody's F&D costs. They do look at everyone's supply costs. So when they're looking forward and forecasting what commodities they think commodity prices are going to be, yeah, of course they, I'm sure, incorporate what the strip is going to look like, but they also know what the industry's supply cost is. And so they, 
you know, in some ways, they know what the commodity price has to be in order for people to have economic drilling prospects and in order for the industry to, to move forward, replacing its depletion. And so, you, you, you know, in a way, we have to kind of believe uh, what, they, what they believe in, uh, somewhat because they, they do know what the industry's cost structure is like. You know what I mean? So in some ways, we can, we can criticize them for, for their belief in the quantity price being different than the strip, uh, but the reality is, you know, the strip sometimes isn't all that right either, and maybe the strip isn't as knowledgeable as the independent engineering firms are of what people's actual costs have been to convert new reserves into production. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, we... We like to beat on them guys, those guys, because, yeah, you know, they make a forecast of commodity prices, and and everybody who makes a forecast of commodity prices is generally wrong. Uh, you know, nobody really knows what the forecast is going to be. But these guys go out on a limb, and they do, you know, in their defense, they they do see what everybody's conversion costs are, and from that, I'm sure they determine what the commodity price needs to be. Um, and so maybe, you know, when we look at the independent engineering firms and we see a forecast that's higher than the strip today, what, that, what we really should conclude from that is that the supply cost is actually higher than the strip today. And so, you know, one would expect that activity levels would probably drop off if those strip prices continue to persist and they have to get above what the uh, company's supply costs really are uh, to be manageable. Okay. So, and, sorry, that doesn't really answer your question. I mean, it's a little bit more background, perhaps, information on those those independent engineering firms. But, um, you know, well, all of this stuff is, is changing quite rapidly. And next quarter, we're probably going to see uh, a significantly different forecast from those guys. And that's going to flow through to a significantly different impact on our reserve values. And, and you know, one would expect, and I think most people do expect in the industry, that as commodity prices um, turn around, that a lot of the impairments, obviously, that the industry has had to take this quarter are going to be reversed. Okay. Yeah. But, but the book value of your your assets now, it seems like with impairment and the, the changes, it seems to match the – you're marking to market almost a bit to, you know, to the assumptions laid out by the reserve um, – Evaluated. Is that kind of the way to think about it? Uh, I don't know. Is that how you would look at it, Kath? I don't think no. from a book value perspective. I'm not really clear on. Uh, sorry, Phi, I'm not sure not what really you're getting at, but. Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll follow up offline with you. Uh, on okay. That. Thanks. One, one thing to just add, Darren, which you covered that well, that the reserve companies have uh, begun to calibrate the near-term prices a lot closer to the strip. But the strip that at the end of the year is just, you know, it would be erroneous to just plug in a current momentary strip that occurs at the end of the year. And it can vary quite a bit over the course of the year depending on the season. I think these, you know, the reserve engineers, as you stated, are, are trying to look at the big picture and the true supply demand uh, <clears throat> on the out years while calibrating the in years or the near years closer to that strip. Okay. Uh, thanks. That's all for me for now. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Our next question comes from Doug Younghusband with CIBC World Markets. Your line is now open. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Lots of moving parts. Not always fun, but it's never boring, right? <laughs> you say so, Doug. <laughs> um, you mentioned higher costs in the quarter due to COVID preparation. So I'm presuming those are expense costs, but over time they'll average out in future quarters, I'm hoping. Or were they sort of one-off additional costs? No, that's right. Um, you know, I would say winter season operating costs generally tend to be higher. We have to obviously use more methanol to keep wells from freezing off. Uh, we've got a lot of snow removal that we're looking at. Road maintenance tends to be higher than in the summer. 
Um, Todd, do you want to jump in there? What else do we have? Yeah, I got those points down for <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, you know, typically in the winter, uh, as well, uh, methanol prices typically go up because supply or demand goes up uh, in, in Alberta. So, so Q, Q1 is typically higher. And then this year, you know, we had to, uh, we weren't too sure what the supply chain might do. So we did uh, purchase a few things, lubricating oils, that sort of stuff, just, just in the off chance that there was a disruption and we would be able to make it through uh, a couple of months. So. You know, it, 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 it accounted for some, but not a lot, and it will average out uh, into Q2. That stuff's we didn't use anymore. It's just uh, kind of sitting in inventory. Sure. If we, had, sure. Uh, if we had been able to foresee that the oil price was going to drop so dramatically, we could have waited and bought our lube oil when it was way cheaper. But, uh, <laughs> I don't think too many people saw that one coming. Yeah, uh, yeah I don't oil think so. Also, you know, we are anticipating lubricating oils to go down. Uh, but they, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation with oil price. Um, obviously, uh, it's tied to the U.S. Uh, producer price index, which did go down. It actually went up in January, and then it's come down. But um, uh, as well, it's tied to the Canadian dollar. So, uh, sure. No, I appreciate that, guys. I, I, I just was was wondering if it was more of a pulling forward some expenses uh, that that you will regain sort of in, in future quarters or give back in future quarters. Um, something that's more curious to me is uh, what's going on with world LNG natural gas prices and will that ultimately translate backwards into North American prices? I mean, the sort of simple view is, you know, Qatar can't sell its gas at a reasonable price, so they've got a surplus and so maybe some of the export capacity out of um, continental USA is going to get backed up or is backing up, which then affects Canadian prices, which move south for volumes moving south. Is that a potential scenario to Canadian prices or North American prices? Yeah, you bet it is, Doug. Uh, you know, it's the sort of counter argument to the positive, more bullish thesis that we're short supply with all the associated gas offline in North America. And so therefore, with the demand, looks like it's pretty robust still, even with COVID. Um, you know, gas prices moving upwards because of this thesis that we're short supply. And then the counter argument, of course, is, but the world is long gas and there's a lot of cheap LNG on the water. And does that mean that that LNG backs up into North America and helps uh, sort of counter the the short supply in North America. And so that's the bearish case for, for gas in North America is the return of the LNG that's supposed to be going out. Now, that being said, um, you know, there was also some reports of uh, Asian countries that have been switching over to uh, more and more LNG to replace their coal. Uh, I think one of the things that they've experienced with all of the isolations and shutdown of the economies and is that they've got cleaner skies over there and they've got cleaner air to breathe and now all of a sudden the direct linkage between that dirty air they were breathing and the coal they're burning becomes more evident and does that change public sentiment and government behavior in a way that they push harder to convert more coal to LNG and burn more gas and now start to draw some of that excess gas that's on the water if you will over into those countries uh, in a more significant way. Um, Good point. You know, Maybe the, a silver lining there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, in the in the very short term, of course, maybe that stuff doesn't happen that fast because you've got to convert coal to gas uh, power generation, and how quickly can that happen? I mean, we saw in the U.S. that that happened over a period of years, but um, you know, in the short term, it's really probably more about the contracts and whether or not there is the takeaway contracts to ensure that that gas keeps flowing out of the Gulf of Mexico and out of those contracted right. LNG facilities, you know, is that over the next six months, for instance, is that enough to keep the pull on, on the LNG there uh, and to prevent it from really backing up too much into, into the Gulf Coast and back into North America? Just one more moving part. Um, last yeah, question. Yeah. Um, so, 
other than condensate, are your natural gas prices or your natural gas liquids prices being negatively affected by the volatility in oil prices? I know there's some linkage there, um, but to what extent are they being affected? I know you're moving away. You're, you're, you're constantly doing this balancing act between lean gas and uh, liquids-rich gas. Um, so I presume there's some effect there other than just to the condensate portion of your liquids. No, you're right. Um, you know, we sell our butane typically as a percentage of oil price. Uh, we try to link it to WTI so that that way we can actually hedge the oil price and we get a direct butane hedge. That's the easiest way for us to do that. Uh, butane, though, is typically used in the refiners, um, refineries to... Uh, produce transportation fuels and the other products that the refineries use. So we sell it locally here to a lot of the refineries in Alberta. And if obviously demand for gasoline is way down and jet fuel is way down and the products that they produce are way down, then they're not going to be needing the same amount of feedstock. And right. so demand for butane could fall a little bit. Um, you know, propane uh, is somewhat the 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 pricing and the demand supply situation for propane is somewhat driven by the U.S., um, although we are seeing a little more opportunity for Canadian propane to get exported to the Far East. Uh, Alpha Gas's project, for instance, off Fridley Island uh, gets us some volume out to that Far East pricing. I, I think generally just, you know, overall global demand uh, is soft because of the COVID, and so prices generally have fallen a little bit. But, um, you know, we look at uh, propane and butane uh, storage levels in Western Canada. They're very low, and so we don't have a lot of that product in storage, which is good. Uh, in the U.S., uh, propane stocks, for instance, are still, I think, at the high end of their normal storage levels, but they're falling quite quickly. And again, you know, if you take a bunch of uh, U.S. gas offline, then you're taking a bunch of the products that come from U.S. gas offline, so a lot less propane gets produced, and perhaps those uh, storage levels for propane rebalance quite quickly. Um, we'll see uh, how demand comes back for propane. Um, arguably, the demand for plastic products seems to be up, so you know maybe a lot of the things that we make out of those natural gas liquids um, demands for that for those products are going to continue to rise and be strong, and so therefore, you know, we'll keep keep needing a lot of those uh, NGL products. The, the Pemina export project, too, I believe, is on the near horizon here with respect to uh, exporting propane off of the west coast. So that will add to Ridley, the Alta Gas Ridley Island export. I, I think Pemina's boats will be going to South America with a bunch of that propane. So. That will add another pull from Western Canadian propane here uh, come, I think, 2021 is when that's going to start to happen. Did Interpipe, they announce something on their PDH plant too, well, right? They're, they're still proceeding, but, you know, they're lower and higher cost. Is that what they announced? Something like that. Well, the, yeah, the cost is still, they're, they're looking for another partner to try to right. help uh, absorb some of that cost. But uh, I can't remember the startup date. 2022? Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's another 20-something thousand barrels of uh, propane a day. So a lot of good, uh, positive, constructive things on the near-term horizon with regard to the propane market in Western Canada. Gentlemen, yeah, thank you. Know. Carry on. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Our next question comes from Aaron Bokowski with TD Securities. Your line is now open. Thanks. Morning, guys. I was just curious, sure. you're one of the um, few companies to proactively build some internal condensate storage. As SANS producers have announced shut-ins, have you guys actually seen um, volumes being shut in and are you producing into those storage facilities? Just any color on that would be helpful. Thanks, Aaron. Um, we haven't yet. Uh, we haven't started to fill any of the condensate storage yet. Um, we, we saw last month some apportionments uh, on the pipelines that take our condensate away. Uh, we did manage to get uh, all of our volumes put to market. And I think for the most part, we've been watching that very closely and there still seems to be uh, a good opportunity to get our volumes to market. Of course, prices are gonna be 
perhaps another thing that gets determined and, and we may have to live with some very weak prices, but uh, as long as we can sort of get our condensate to market, then we can at least make that call on, on the price. Uh, we were more concerned, I think, with this condensate storage um, uh, tank farm that we built that we wouldn't actually be able to move our product at all, and that would be really disastrous because then we'd have to shut in all our production. So, you know, really this was uh, somewhat insurance against uh, the pipelines really getting full. Um, you know, we've seen a fair amount of oil supply shut in, obviously on the heavy oil side. I think up to a million or so barrels a day is is shut in now in Alberta. Um, there is a knock-on impact for sure on condensate demand. Um, what I've heard from at least one heavy oil producer, though, was that they were actually continuing to stockpile condensate a little bit because the price was was attractive to them and they had some tankage and rather than fill up their tankage with their own production they were using some of that tankage actually to store condensate so in some ways um, you know that maybe that condensate market has been artificially propped up uh, by the heavy oil producers who are continuing to buy even though they're not producing um, but all this could still come to a head at any point, right? We, we've got a lot of, st of uh, volumes that are shut in. We've got a, uh, a lot of uh, storage that's being rapidly filled up. And so, um, you know, we needed to be prepared. Uh, we thought this was a pretty cheap bit of insurance that we could put in place for, you know, that would cover us for a short period of time while we reacted to what was going on. Oh, perfect. Thanks for that. You bet. Thank you. As a reminder, to ask a question, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. Our next question comes from Travis Wood with National Bank Financial. Your line is now open. Yeah, good morning, guys. Uh, Darren, in your morning, opening remarks, you mentioned uh, kind of costs, both on the capital and operating cost side. So I thought that you set that up to, to address that. So could you talk about uh, the controllables that you have here in terms of where where and how low capital could go through kind of Q2 to Q4, um, where you would be comfortable, kind of how low that, that could possibly be, and then kind of where, where we could see savings on, on the operating cost side and, and perhaps even uh, on, the, on the transportation cost side as you were talking about uh, some of, the, some of the, the pipeline issues taking place at the moment. Yeah, you bet. Um, maybe, Lee, I'll hit you up for just some color on capital cost savings, uh, what we've seen in Q1, and maybe what we might see for the rest of the year? Sure. Um, I guess to start, you know, our uh, our species diversity, we've lost a little little bit of ground because of, uh, you know, redeploying our fleet uh, efforts directed towards some deeper gassier Spirit River species. So um, with that, we've, you know, we start to heighten our, uh, our frack intensity, and, and so we've lost a little bit of ground on our, on our per well cost on that front, but... Uh, but uh, you know, we, we continue to see a lot of performance gains. Um, offsetting a lot of that is uh, is a lot higher pad efficiencies, and and as we as we recalibrate on that with uh, with kind of new service cost uh, uh, portfolios, we we're starting to realize that that our pad efficiencies are are perhaps much greater than than what we we've uh, realized historically. Um, so we've kind of got a recalibrated model on that, and our schedule coming up reflects uh, a lot, a lot more uh, pad uh, pad operations in our uh, in our schedule. Um, on top of that, you know, it's it's a pretty delicate balance right now with 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 our financial health uh, as we consider the financial health of our of our service contractor fleet, and we we do recognize that a number of these guys are are really just extensions of our company, and and. We need them to survive, and, and so we have a lot of really open, transparent conversations. Um, you know, um, and, and we work together. We've seen a lot of oil-based inputs like diesel fuel and, and, and drilling fluid-based oil fall, you know, in excess of 25%. So that's that's a pretty pretty easy uh, easy cost reduction to uh, to understand. Um, drilling rig day rates continue to reduce. Uh, well testing. Uh, casing, those types of major inputs that uh, that, that compri uh, comprise a lot of our capital cost structure have come down. You know, in the in the high single digit to low double digit numbers. Um, you know, this industry is is uh, is hyper competitive right now. The, the fact that there's only 
uh, less than 25 rigs running. Um, you know, everybody's really thinning up where they can. It's you know, there's been a lot of uh, employment loss as a result, but uh, but everybody's really working together not only to uh, to find the bottom line margins that we can work within, but um, but to really put their minds together and find ways um, to align with our staff and our engineers on, on uh, improving efficiencies. And so, you know, we look at this performance curve that we go through uh, every uh, every quarter, every couple quarters, and every time we look at it, we just we sometimes get a little amazed that we still continue to see these performance gains despite, you know, drilling a thousand of these things. Um, and it's really a function of, of just, you know, Everybody kind of putting their best heads together and and uh, and finding finding ways to uh, to improve those uh, improve those uh, timelines. So so that's uh, so in general, I think you know we're conservatively anticipating overall 10% reduction, and that's really surrounding what we're seeing on in the near term on just service cost uh, pricing reductions. So you know with with some continued uh, efforts on on performance improvement, hopefully that improves and. And uh, between that and pad efficiencies, uh, hopefully we can offset some, you know, the bulk majority, if not more than the cost increase we see from from increased frac intensity and and uh, some deeper, longer laterals. Okay, so that's the capital side, Travis. Um, Todd, do you, can you put some color on the op costs and initiatives to reduce those? And yeah, uh, for sure. Um, like Lee mentioned, you know, uh, we've been talking with service providers and, and they've been, you know, willing to reduce costs in, in some areas. So, so we're going to see that through the year. Um, you know, basically since 2018, we've been uh, negotiating uh, road use costs with road owners and we've seen some pretty good gains on that. We, uh, at the end of last year, uh, we had two significant reductions um, to a large number of our wells with, with two road owners. Now, due to the lag in billing, uh, we won't really see those cost benefits until Q2, but they are they will continue in perpetuity. So um, we'll continue to work on that throughout this year. Um, we're talking to a couple other road, user, road owners as well, so uh, hopefully uh, we can get them to move a little bit on their rates. Um, as I mentioned, lubricating oils, we expect those to fall. Um, and again, uh, you know, with methanol, um, uh, we expect that to fall. We've already seen about a 16% drop in the methanol price from Q1 into Q2 here. Um, so we expect to, to see that fall throughout the year. And then we usually renegotiate our a contract that somewhat floats on, on the Canadian dollar, but uh, we renegotiate that usually in the summertime at the low price point, so uh, we get a benefit from that. Um, and then as well, here early in Q3, we plan to commission our uh, water disposal and uh, well, water disposal well and facility. So that should uh, that should help us to see a, a bit of a modest reduction in our in our water handling costs for the rest of the year and going forward. Um, and then I guess a bigger point, finally we're starting to see some reduction in government fixed costs. Um, you know, the AER and min fee has been reduced for 2020. Uh, we have in indications that property taxes will be reduced. Um, we don't know exactly what that number will be yet. We've got, you know, we're hoping that it's significant. We're, I know CAP has been asking and working with the government for quite some time you know, about a year and a half here. Uh, so hopefully we'll see something meaningful come from that um, and something beyond 2020. I think with the AER, I think they've agreed that their budget will be reduced going forward. So that will be something that's not just 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Trav, does that answer most of that? Yes, yeah, that, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Derek Wenger with a private investor. Your line is now open. Yes, two questions. I came in late. I apologize. Um, one, when would the balance sheet be published? And two, um, was there any uh, change to the dividend? Uh, no change to the dividend this quarter. Obviously, we announced prior to coming into the quarter that we were uh, reducing the dividend significantly. That was really on the heels of a lot of the OPEC plus um, activity and then 
you know, the further impact of COVID-19 on demand, when we finally started to see the evolution of the commodity price tape after all that change in Q1, um, we announced that we were taking the dividend down to one penny a quarter. We're cutting our capital back uh, by 50 million bucks uh, midpoint of guidance. So we had made those adjustments really coming into the quarter. Uh, with respect to balance sheet, are, are, are you talking about the uh, the banks and uh, and our bank liquidity and that kind of thing, or? No, I'm just talking about the balance sheet in general. I didn't see it on the press release, and I don't see it on CDAR. It's not CDAR filed. It is on our website. If you um, go into the press release and click on the link um, at the end of the press release, it will take you directly to the financial statements and to the MD&A. Um, uh, alternatively, you can go directly to our website, www.pato.com, and uh, you can get to the financial reports. Under financial updates, there's a link on the front page that will take you right to the financial statements. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. I'm not showing any further questions at this time. I would now like to turn the call back over to Darren G. for closing remarks. Okay. Um, thanks, Joelle. Uh, oh. Is there one more question there? Yes. And the question comes from Stephen Young with a private investor. Your line is now open. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I think no one expected the uh, ACO prices would do so well relative to the North American prices. But uh, so diversification and hedging was a very good move. I just noticed that the diversifying activity cost about $0.88, cents, which is slightly better than the previous quarter. Uh, could you elaborate more about this, whether the trend would keep on going down or what the benefits of the future benefits of the diversification? Thank you. Stephen, that's a great question. Um, so in the winter months, uh, our basis uh, differential between ACO and NYMEX that we locked in is about 10 cents cheaper than uh, in the summer months. Um, so that's part of the reason that uh, uh, maybe the uh, diversification activities are getting a little bit cheaper. But um, also we've diversified to a couple of other hubs. So we've got some diversification, not just to NYMEX, but also to Ventura, Emerson, um, we've now actually, going forward, added on some Malin diversification as well. Um, you know, all of this is still very expensive relative to the existing basis today. And as you pointed out, the ACO market strengthened a lot more than anybody really expected, and that tightened the basis differential between ACO and NYMEX. Um, we put a lot of these basis diversification deals in place uh, a year or two ago when ACO was $1.50 and NYMEX was $3. And so at the time, that was the cost to get a get out of ACO and get to some of these other hubs. Um, and at the time, we didn't know ACO was going to be reconnected or fixed. Uh, it was very much a broken market for about two years. And uh, we were suffering through that significantly. Um, we couldn't hedge fuel forward on, at ACO because we were at prices that were too low. A lot of times there we had even negative prices, so uh, we really had to to uh, direct our gas elsewhere, and the cost to get elsewhere was very expensive. Um, we took short-term uh, diversification initiatives rather than sign up for 10 years worth of pipe contracts, for instance, to get our gas physically all the way to a market elsewhere. Uh, we took some synthetic short-term financial uh, basis deals that put our gas at NYMEX, um, but they were very expensive, and uh, we're now paying the price for that. Um, and will for for probably another year. But um, the fact that they were short-term and they were financial means we can work with them. Um, when NYMEX has been strong enough, we've definitely been hedging to fix the price at NYMEX so that that combined with that basis gives us a fixed equivalent price back in, in Alberta. And, uh, you know, if we can get anything over really $2 Canadian, uh, we're doing just fine at Pato. It's the it's the dollar fifty that was obviously a bit of a, a tough slug for us, but um, yeah, going forward, ACO looks very good. Um, 
arguably if we could just direct all our gas to the ACO market today, uh, we'd be doing even a lot better on the gas price realizations and the cash flows. Um, but, you know, hindsight's always 2020, and, uh, you know, nobody really knew uh, that the market at ACO could, could be fixed uh, this significantly and, and be this strong. Uh, arguably, you might suggest that uh, the two years of $1.50 ACO were obviously driving a lot of producer behavior. There was a lot less gas being developed in our basin, and so now we find ourselves a bit short in the basin, which is providing strength in the price, uh, whereas now, you know, it's only really in the last uh, six months or so that the U.S. market has seen these very soft gas prices that are now driving producer behavior, and so they're all starting to... Uh, slow down and invest less and their supply is starting to turn over and this was really before the associated gas shut-ins came along. Uh, we were starting to see this thesis down in the U.S. So they're going through uh, arguably uh, a transition similar to how we had to in, uh, in Western Canada. Um, so hopefully on the, on the back end of both of those transitions we're going to see much more constructive gas prices in both markets. Um, I think we're still a little bit shy of the ACO market, knowing what we've been through and having experienced it. Uh, you know, we're we're still a bit cautious directing all of our gas at that market. Um, you know, I think we still believe in the diversification of our of our gas portfolio the way we have it. Uh, you know, a good portion to the U.S. market, a, a portion to the Canadian market, and quite frankly, the we'd love to even increase the proportion that we have that's directly connected to industry in Alberta uh, that completely avoids the pipe. Uh, that way we can uh, share in the economic rent with the uh, consumer ultimately directly, and I think that's going to benefit us a lot. Um, you know, as an example, uh, this past winter, particularly in January, we had some extremely cold weather that drove power prices up in Alberta if, uh, if we had been connected at that time to the uh, Cascade power plant that uh, we are going to be direct connected to in a, in a couple of years' time, uh, Scott, what were you looking at, the, the power prices a, versus the gas prices? We would have made a fortune. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, a ga uh, power price peaked to the maximum of 1000 uh, bucks. Maybe one hour there for, for about a week or just under a week in January. But... It's interesting. For January, overall, the average, we would have made 10 bucks uh, a gigajoule uh, in a round number for our gas for that portion that we would have sold had they been running. And before the first quarter, we would have made uh, right around $5 uh, uh, based on the power prices that Alberta experienced uh, and, and our pricing formula for, um, for the gas that we deliver. And, and above and beyond that, we'd save whatever, 20, 20 to 40 cents of transportation costs by putting the gas directly into those into that power plant uh, off of the, uh, the uh, inter-Alberta system. So those are, yeah, very promising future uh, aspects to, uh, to our market diversification that haven't kicked in yet, but they are, we're excited about them and, and they're on the horizon and there's a real will in Alberta to see natural gas and power become more uh, prevalent in, in, our, uh, yeah, in our power delivery. We're, we're part of the uh, LNG consortium as well, and that's another thing out there on the horizon that uh, there's some earlier discussion on the soft LNG prices, but uh, Darren alluded to the fact that uh, the Asian countries, although they've had a bit of a soft winter and it's been compounded by the uh, demand destruction with COVID, there's still a really strong move to, um, natural gas substitution of coal and a lot of these facilities are going to feed into that um, you know we, we'd like to be part of that uh, if if the ingredients are, are right for that particular uh, marketing opportunity yeah so that's uh, a little more color on the diversification Stephen hopefully that answers your question thanks you answered it thank you I'm not showing any further questions at this time. I would now like to turn the call back over to Darren G for closing remarks. Okay, well thanks Joelle and uh, thanks everybody for listening in this morning and for a lot of those good questions. Um, you know, uh, we're hopefully uh, through the worst of it now with respect to the, both the pandemic and uh, perhaps some of the commodity market disruption and hopefully we're on the recovery. 
as slow as it may be. Um, you know, the bright spot for natural gas, obviously, is as we take oil offline because we've got too much in storage, then the associated gas comes off and, uh, and we're short gas in North America. So Pato's uh, pretty excited about that prospect and finally getting some more constructive gas prices moving forward. Uh, obviously, we're a gas company with 85% of our production basically focused on natural gas. So uh, all of that is... Uh, very uh, very good for our cash flows and, and makes us uh, quite a bit stronger. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, getting through this summer into next winter where we can even enjoy uh, stronger gas prices again. So um, we'll be back to you in Q2 to let you know how uh, breakup's gone and uh, how we got back out in the field. Hopefully the spring rains won't be too bad and uh, we'll be back uh, taking advantage of some of these great opportunities that we see on the horizon. So uh, stay tuned and uh, We'll talk to you after the second quarter. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.